to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the Thoughtful Book Club podcast that will be recommending a work to you today. I am Travis, and joining me as ever is podcast co-host Amanda. Welcome back, Amanda. Thank you. Today we will be recommending a book to the listener. If you're listening to this, this podcast is intended for a a non-reader of the work we're about to discuss, which is a novel by Japanese author Haruki Murakami titled Hard-Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World, which is a surreal novel of two narratives, one in a kind of modernish Tokyo, kind of sci-fi-ish Tokyo, um, maybe more fantastical Tokyo, and the other is in a mysterious town called the End of the World, uh, about which I won't say much more uh, to avoid spoiling things. <laughs> mm-hmm. The novel was chosen by you, Amanda, and the prompt I gave you for this book or for selecting this book was to pick an author you were embarrassed to never have read. So where did your embarrassment come from? Um. I have never read Mur- I had never read Murakami before, um, mm-hmm. but I had heard of him quite often actually within our circle of friends. Um, I know your uh, your roommate uh, specifically had read a couple of his and had recommended him, and and I know that our friend Eric had recommended him, um, even though he has mixed feelings about him. and And I've heard of Murakami before as well uh, because I took a couple of Japanese culture courses in college okay but I, yeah. and i have like three of his books but i just never got around to reading him and and i've heard so much praise that i was like man i really need to i can't believe i haven't read him yet <laughs> yeah he's probably the most translated japanese author into english or if not the most translated the most popular among american readers or i can't guess yeah. i can't speak for the other uh, rest of the English-speaking world, but in America, he's probably one of the most Japanese authors alive, and so his blend of sort of surrealism, he's well known for making narratives that are sort of, I don't know, melancholy and maybe even fatalist, and most of his work definitely is in the fantastical group, can be a bit surreal, can be a bit dreamlike at times, and so yeah, he's well known for that style. As we've mentioned already, this is a book recommendation episode intended for anybody listening to this, so hopefully you stick with us. We will use this episode to explain why we chose this work, what we think works about it, what we like about it, and ultimately we're trying to persuade you to read along with us over the course of the next two weeks. So so our goal ultimately here is to convince you to come along on that ride with us. We will be doing two book club episodes, so we'll split the novel in half. This coming Friday, we will post part one, part one of that book club. And then next Friday, we'll post part two, giving you plenty of time to read along. We'll begin today with the recommendation with these uh, similes, which we like to begin with. It's something a bit more fun. gives us a creative way to describe the work and what it was like to read it. Amanda, do you want to begin with your simile today? What did you find reading this novel to be like? Sure. Um, And I, I looked at it from like my actual reading experience, like how I felt as I was reading it. Sure. And um, I said that it's like visiting a big city for the first time um, where there are so many great places to see. There's so many interesting people to meet all this stuff, right? Like he's got all these wonderful similes and great motifs and all this stuff. But there's also this air of danger of something that could go terribly wrong at any moment because you're new and you don't know the city yet. So there's like throughout, there's like this almost ominous uh, mood and tone throughout the entire novel that I've picked up on pretty early. Yeah, it's got kind of like a major city, too. It's got little detours and downtown pockets and alleyways that you want to investigate. Maybe that the 
the novel sort of invents or not invents invites that investigation maybe set in a satisfactory way sometimes maybe not but in that way it's got the kind of labyrinthian nature of a of a fresh city i think that's a great simile thank you i went simpler and way more online have you ever been to the <laughs> subreddit called oddly satisfying no this is a subreddit community that posts videos that feel oddly satisfying to watch they're usually of things i would say falling into place or of things that line up in a very satisfying way. So it could be something like, I could imagine it being something like somebody who folds a deck of cards like perfectly, or like immediately cleans them up and makes them like a perfect stack. So a lot of the subreddit is about making orderly things out of disorderly things. Power washing often makes its way there. So it's like, you know how power washing, you get those really clean lines between the the dirt and the, and the clean side. Yeah. Sort of things like that. These images that feel, I don't know, satisfying to the brain to organize. I'm going to say my simile is kind of like browsing that subreddit just because the novel so clearly leans on the dual narratives and that twist has to work. Thankfully, I think it did. And so, you know, without saying anything else, we are definitely spoil. This is 100% intended for people who have not read the book, so we're not going to spoil anything. But you, yep. the book really depends on that working. And I think that that metaphorical power washer does clean up both narratives and it invites some interesting questions at the end. And it also, there there's a clarity that comes in a little past halfway that I think makes the ending of the book, I don't know, even more interesting to read into. So I think that felt pretty satisfying to me. And it, mm-hmm. the beginning does feel maybe not chaotic, but because there's no link happening between the two, you're left to grasp at a lot of small details and... I just think if that hadn't worked, this would have been a really, a much more surreal and strange effort, but because it comes together and leaves enough things open, I I found it was quite satisfying. Me too. Okay, with the similes out of the way then, Amanda, let's jump to the scripted pitch. You and I each get 200 words to prepare a more or less scripted piece of writing to try and compel the listener to read along with us and join us for this adventure. I guess I'll go first. I'm not going to put the pressure on you to go first again you know, yeah. let's share the load as we, <laughs> as we tend to here and so i'll give my scripted pitch first so this is this is what i've got for you listeners so imagine you're a person who doesn't like fantasy or science fiction you're like game of thrones is terrible i don't care about dragons or dragon riding or swords swinging around and i think idea the idea of robot companions or space wars laser swords it all that stuff is lame okay that's fine I think then that Murakami is the author of the fantastical that you perhaps are waiting for, you imaginary listener. And this novel, Hardboiled Wonderland and the End of the World, it toes the line between surreal and inaccessible, but then also traditional kind of crime mystery narrative, just well enough to be a great introduction to Murakami's style. Like it doesn't, it is surreal and strange, but it's not so foreign or alien as to be like a Borges or something. And so I think it's pretty accessible in that way. It is a story of two narratives. One is in this crime-drenched kind of modernish Tokyo, and the other one is really in this out-of-time town where everybody's job title is their name. No one has names there. They're just the gatekeeper or the you know power guy or whatever, the, the colonel. And so the narrative payoff between those two narratives, which does 100% occur, I was concerned halfway through the book, like, man, am I really going to have to put this together for myself? It does take patience, so it's after page 200 where where that happens. Um, But once it does go there, I think it does push your mind to becoming kind of, I don't know, a flurry with 
considerations of the subconscious or the id, the ego, human desire, and then there's this big discussion about immortality in the human mind, and so I think it does open up and unlock some pretty worthwhile and big topics, big conversations, and I think it pays most of that stuff off, so that that is waiting in there, but it does take some patience. I think it does overburden itself a bit with these kind of genre disguises. So like it's got a clear HP Lovecraft section and it's got noir fiction too. in it, there are allusions to those genres, but it, the malleable main character who it, it makes for a very accessible vessel to the story. There's no literary hang up in a major way. So I think that's good too. Maybe too many allusions to Bob Dylan for my taste, but you know, that's the only forewarning I have. I think that is my pitch, Amanda. Over to you. There are also allusions to Russian authors that that's, we've also That's discussed, true. So. <laughs> a lot of musical allusions. The, the main character does have certain strong preferences for, what is it, like The Clash, Bob Dylan, The Beatles, maybe? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, nah, Beatles might be he too mainstream. He mentioned the Beatles, but he did definitely did not actually play the Beatles. He kind of looked down on, like, the police, though. Okay. They, he mentioned the police. Was it the cabbie who was... Okay, yeah. that's what it was. All about that. Got it. And none of <laughs> that was spoilers. And Duran Duran. Yeah, strictly speaking, none of that was spoilers. Those are those are light illusions that if you want to read deeply into the character, it could matter a lot more. But none of that is, is spoilerish. But yeah, I think so. With that one kind of joking caveat, I think that is my pitch for reading this book, Amanda. Again, whenever you're ready, I'll toss this to you. I'm ready. As I take a sip from my mm-hmm. um, very fitting unicorn oh mug. okay a skull uh, mug <laughs> skull mug i thought you were gonna say uh, maybe because he drinks beer quite a lot there's a lot of beer in the book i thought you were gonna say <laughs> there's a lot of and whiskey yeah this is an afternoon <laughs> recording so i thought you were gonna say from your beer whiskey and i was gonna give you a little tip of the cap no. a little salute nope, my unicorn okay. mug <laughs> Um, so I'll go ahead. Um, as the title suggests, Murakami's novel is really two novels that slowly merge, uh, very slowly merge. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to experience Murakami's writing styles, uh, yes, that is the plural styles. Uh, this is definitely the one to read. We get to see the sci-fi noir plot-driven Murakami in the Wonderland chapters. And we also get to see the mythical romantic with a capital R. Think of um, your uh, Wordsworth and other British poets um, of the Victorian era um, and imagery-laden Murakami in the End of the World chapters. Both narratives are written beautifully despite being written so differently. So you definitely get to see all of Murakami's style here at play, and it's really fascinating. Um, but hey, if that's not enough to entice you, because not everybody cares about style, mm-hmm. um, the novel's quirky characters definitely will. You can expect a genius professor with a country accent, a chubby fema, uh, femme fatale, and of course, there's the compliant, almost indifferent narrator um, who's faced with a difficult choice, the main conflict there. Um And then you just place these characters in a world of warring infotech giants and underground human-eating monstrosities. And you've got this amazing novel that is both polished and absorbing. I definitely recommend it. It was a great read. I think you're so right to pick up on the characters. This is, I think, in some of the criticism we researched and lightly read for this book, it does seem that it's kind of remembered for the characters and that the Murakami is a person who always seems to write quirky characters who can't really be pinned down too easily they can't be described Mm -hmm. too readily and put into boxes so to speak and i think yeah that definitely shines through in this book too i mean it's clear that yeah we were concerned early in the book 
And if you listen to the part one of the book club, for some kind of, we had some uh, maybe legitimate concerns about some of the way the characters are being drawn up. But I think for the most part, they come together. And that yeah. it didn't leave too many large, undeveloped holes in any of the characters. Even even the character, I think we were the most kind of, I don't know, neutral? I was going to say bland on. We weren't bland on them. We were feeling very neutrally and maybe like they weren't serving the narrative well. I would say even they had kind mm-hmm. of a fitting end. I don't even want to re- refer to who that is just to leave yeah. that open. Um, but yeah, even I think that pays off in a, in a kind of narrative structural way. Yeah. And the genre blending, good point, too. And I guess we shouldn't undersell this either, final point on your pitch. The two narratives have a pretty distinct, and this could be in the translation, I'm sure it was in his original Japanese, but pretty distinct styles. That stood out to us a lot, and there's reasons for that, too. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's almost like you're reading two different, completely different narratives. Right, that eventually become one narrative, but only... Yeah, Yeah, in a way. Like, theoretically. Yeah, Yeah, that... The, the book will, again, pay that off. Thankfully, thankfully. Yeah. Well, let's get to some specifics then before we end our persuasive pitch here. A couple more segments to do. First, we will give quotes for clarification. So this is when each of us gets to read a quote from the story that we think expresses something important, either stylistically or in terms of story elements or something. Um, I guess I'll put it on you, Amanda. Why don't you go first with your quote and talk to us about why you chose it? Sure. Mine is from page 183, and it says, I turned my attention to the food that had arrived. And, oh, sorry, this one's on page 189. I turned my attention to the food that had arrived and mechanically shoveled hamburger with its expressway ticket-sized leaf of lettuce down the hatch. And I chose that one because it's uh, pretty symbolic or pretty fitting as far as the style that's for um, the Wonderland chapters, where it's a lot of metaphors, similes, analogies to these modern um, things that like the expressway ticket, right? It's one-liners that are very descriptive because it's something that we have experienced as readers and it's very clear cut versus um, a quote from 183, which is going to be our Um, end of the world chapters the other narrative and Mm -hmm. that one says the voice of the light remains ever so faint images quiet as ancient constellations float across the dome of my dawning mind and here there's not just one analogy like in um the other one but it's several images that kind of are at play there and it's a lot different as far as like being more nature-based rather than uh something that's more modern yeah it's a great. It's great that you pulled one from each. I had debated it hard too in my own selection. Like, which narrative do I pick from? Yeah. And then they are so distinct yeah. that it, you almost have to make a choice in yourself and think which was more compelling or something. So, yeah, that's great right. that you just picked both. It's tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think too the <laughs> expressway ticket size leaf. That little comparison is indicative of his style too. He he doesn't overstay with descriptions, especially in that that Tokyo, the modern Tokyo narrative, and doesn't sort of. I don't know. I feel like no no simile, no metaphor, whatever lasts for more than a couple sentences. It's all pretty bite sized, and the references come pretty quickly. And so I think yeah, it's it's pretty accessible too. I pulled a quote. I ended up settling on one from the I guess we'll call it the end of the world narrative. I'm just going to call it the town. It's an unnamed town in an unnamed place in an unnamed time, which the narrative will help unwind as the story goes. But it's all unnamed there, and this quote is from that selection. So it reads. 
The wall looms behind the ruins of the house. Never in the woods have I been this close to the wall. It is literally breathtaking. Here in this tiny clearing in the eastern woods, resting by this old well, listening to the sound of the wind, looking up at the wall, I fully understand the words of the gatekeeper. This wall is perfect, a perfect creation. It rises as it has risen from the beginning, like the clouds above, like the river etched into the earth. The wall is far too grand to capture on a map. It is not static. Its pulse is too intense, its curves too sublime. Its faces change dramatically with each new angle. An accurate rendering on paper cannot be possible. So there's a couple things here that I think work really well. The contrast between its perfection, but then also saying that it's a it's an entity, it's pulsing, it's it's cur it's you know, it is not static. It has a hint of menace about it, which everything in the town, and I think this even goes up to when things are revealed, everything in the town has a bit of menace, uncertainty, and unknowability about it. And I think this description of the wall is kind of perfect in that regard. Um, it also references the gatekeeper and kind of the whole conflict in the town and how the character there wants to understand it better, but really struggles with the machinations of it. And no one seems to be helping him that much. Everyone's kind of like half helping him along and getting to understand yeah you'll you'll get used to it over yeah, time yeah. once you become one of us the wall's just there <laughs> i don't know who made it it's it's a wall it's there it's helping yeah. us out and i think these yeah. descriptions that are so vivid and intense and i think there's some good syntax in there too that works really well like the, the perfect creation little bit um i just think it's that kind of rich imagery and description that that makes that narrative enjoyable, which would otherwise be frustrating for 200 pages of just unknowability and lack of connection. But there were, and we get to this in book club part one, if hopefully you, the listener, join us for that. But there are some things that you can tell it's that it's starting to make links, but it's not, you're not certain why yet. And then again, it pays those things off. So that is co- sort of the style and the tone of the We'll call, I'll call that the town or the end of the world town bit of the of the book. Any yeah thoughts on those quotes, Amanda? That's perfect because with the the menace of the wall and of the town too, like it's supposed to be this idyllic place. But if we go back to the the simile that I had created, I felt that menace even when reading those. So it's like the entire novel, the entire experience of of the novel, even though it's two different locations, it's two different narratives mm-hmm. I, there's still that undertone of menace throughout both something of is awry so, and i don't and i think the novel yeah. does I, it did almost lose me i would say but it did but ultimately did not so that is that's what i'll say about that kind of mystery let's move to our final segment then amanda and help our listeners if they do decide to join us on this literary journey give them a bit of assistance from our literary knapsack i'm going to keep the word knapsack for now <laughs> I like yeah, it. Yeah, it's kind I of like a nifty it. word. It it feels Yeah, it's better than fanny yeah, pack. Yeah, and it feels more friendly. <laughs> it's it's definitely less corny than than fanny pack and less modern, <laughs> which I kind of like. And I think it's more friendly, also less modern than backpack, which I think would be a little too like schoolyard, you know, 2000 schoolyard kind of a vibe. Rucksack doesn't quite fit the tone, I don't think. That's Knapsack also kind of makes you think of like adventure too. So yeah, or at least like an afternoon, you know, like an afternoon's adventure. Like yeah. maybe a rucksack would be for like if I'm going adventuring over these mountains, but a knapsack is right. like I want to go on a hike all day, something like that. So you know, we're just workshopping it here on the pod. This is all staying in, but we're keeping it. We're keeping the literary <laughs> knapsack for now. Just a fun word to say. Also, let's just keep saying it. It's fun to you know pronounce. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that matters. Um, but this is the segment where we each give one piece of literary advice for you, the listener, who are delving into this book for the first time. We'll try and outline some kind of either stylistic element or structural thing. This is basically a bit of foreshadowing in a way, but it's also literary advice. So, Amanda, why don't you give them the first tool for the knapsack? Sure. Um, I chose juxtaposition. Yeah, mm-hmm. word from high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are contrasts that are scattered throughout this novel in both um, sets of narratives as well. And it's it's more than just the fact that the novel is broken up into two contrasting narratives. Um, right. It's also that there's um, nearly every character has some kind of opposite nearly every major uh, component or idea or theme is also shared with some kind of opposite. And I think that it's also equally as interesting when we come upon those that do not have opposites. It just makes it stand out a little bit more and probably for a reason. For sure. Yeah. So I would just say pay attention to um, – all the things that he points out that have opposites. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point and a good choice. Mine has yours embedded within it. So I'm just going to easily segue over. I went with the literary movement surrealism. So I'll read from the Oxford English dictionary here on this one. Uh, Surrealism was an anti-rational movement of imaginative liberation in European art and literature in the 1920s and 30s. And then it bled to other continents and cultures, just to be clear. It's not like exclusively European, but I think it's credited for starting there. Surrealism seeks to break down the boundaries between rationality and irrationality, exploring the resources and revolutionary energies of dreams, hallucinations, and sexual desires. It often includes the free association of random images brought together in surprising juxtaposition. There you go. Woo! Talk about, yeah, talk about a link up that we did not plan. But once I saw that yours <laughs> nice. was juxtaposition, I knew I had to include that bit of the definition. It's a definition that fits <laughs> this story pretty well. I think ultimately the narrative does not become 100% surreal. It has those qualities, and I think those qualities float in and out. Um, especially in the end of the world, we'll just call it the town narrative. I, but by the end, I, I think I'd be hard-pressed to say that the images are random. I think there's a lot of juxtaposition, some surprising. I, I, the random claim here in the definition perhaps does not fit. I think by the end of it, we had some pretty good ideas on how to read certain things. But the dream-like nature of it, the hallucinations, the the kind of random insertion of sexual desire into scenarios that don't seem to fit that sometimes it does all fit with murakami style even in the tokyo setting those things the the way the narrator thinks and the kind of way his thoughts can float around a bit it has a tinge of surrealism to it so i don't go in expecting i would say the narrative is quite clear and once the things are brought together it's it's maybe too clear um we talk about that on the pod too but it, it is quite clear eventually um and to, if you can get over the kind of surrealistic elements by then, especially the first chapter, the more I look back to it, the way it opened with the elevator and everything was way yeah. more off-putting than the rest of it came to be. Like, it really starts answering questions not long thereafter. And so it's an intriguing kind of off-putting opening. So if you can endure those first 30, 40 pages, then it things start to unravel and, and you can start asking some interesting questions. Any final thoughts on the Haruki Murakami novel, Amanda? Um, no, just that it was um, a wonderful read that I, and I think that he's an author that I will definitely revisit. Yeah, I've read, we talk about this too, so we won't give up too much, but I've read more than you. I enjoy his writing and find it to be a, 
very breathable form of surrealism, we'll say. Not 100% off-putting, not 100% out there and loose, and there's just enough things kind of brought together and drawn together that um, I think there's a lot to pick at and pull at, too, which makes it good for book discussion and book clubs. So we do hope, you listener, that you join us. If you decide to, if you found our case persuasive, we will be submitting and uploading part one of the book club this Friday, and that's 219. That goes through half of the book, I think almost exactly. And so just cut the book in half. We're right about there. I think it was chapter 28, 29, something like that. But we will say on the pod, so nothing gets spoiled through. You can read up with us. And then part two will be the following Friday. We always post a book club on Friday. That's every Friday. And that will be on 226 or February 26th. And that will be for the whole book at that point. Um, We also have other books coming up. If you didn't find this case particularly persuasive, we have the next three books of our book club chosen. I'll have Amanda read them off for us. Amanda, what are our next three books in order? Sure. Um, That's Different Seasons by Stephen King, which is a um, collection of four of his novellas. Kim Ji-young, born 1982, by Cho Nam-ju, a a Korean translation. And Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman. Yeah, lots of of different things to pick from. The Different Seasons by Stephen King and Norse Mythology by Neil Gaiman have more of a short story novella format, but I think... I think we'll be reading all of the game in, but we did not do all of the King. So we'll talk about which ones from King yep. we chose. And then is it safe to say that the Kim Ji Young born 1982 novel is a, it said it launched a feminist movement, right? In Korea. Yep. Fem- yep. A very recent one. Yeah. yeah. So more of a modern novel <laughs> and definitely impactful in terms of, you know, literary and world movements. So some relevant stuff coming up. We thank you, as always, for listening. We hope you give the Haruki Murakami a chance, and uh, we will be there to guide you um, both both halfway through and at the end. And as always, till next time, we will see you between the pages. Mm-hmm.